0: Okay, I'll admit it, I had a bah humbug moment this Christmas. You see, my house is on a corner lot, and I have a very nice 25-foot tall pine tree that sits right on the edge where the two streets meet. And one of my neighbors came up to me with a great idea for my tree. Right before Thanksgiving, he very enthusiastically suggested that since my tree is so visible and so perfectly shaped, it would make a great Christmas tree for the entire neighborhood. We could string it with lights and make it really nice and then invite the whole neighborhood over uh, to a tree lighting. And we'd have hot cider and make s'mores and just make it a, a neighborhood hallmark movie event. And at the time, that sounded good to me. I mean, I like the idea of doing something to bring our neighborhood together because, you know, in our suburban way of life, I hardly ever see any of my neighbors. It's dark in the morning when people go off to work. It's dark when people come home. There's been a lot of turnover in our neighborhood. New people have moved in, and and I don't know them. I never even saw the moving vans come and go. So yeah, that's a great idea, a great way to minister and meet people, and it's a great idea on paper, you know. But then there's the reality of actually doing it. A few weekends got wiped out because of bad weather. Unexpected events at church took up a couple of my Saturdays. My neighbor had his scheduling issues, and more and more, this the, more, more it looked like this we project was becoming a me project. I started feeling some resentment towards my neighbor for coming up with the idea and then just dumping it in my lap. I began to calculate the cost of all the lights, the logistics of borrowing a ladder big enough to do the job. And then, what was I going to do with the lights when Christmas was over? I mean, if I left the lights on the tree, the squirrels are just going to chew the ribbons out of them. So I'd have to unstring the lights, and then I'd end up with this big ball of tangled wires, and I'd have to put it somewhere, and i have been trying to clean out my basement, not fill it back up with junk. So I felt guilty for not wanting to put in the effort and the expense, and finally, I just had to admit, as good as it sounded, I really just did not want to do it. So bah humbug to my neighborhood. Bah humbug. If I were to tell you a story written by Charles Dickens about a solitary, crotchety old man who despised both people and Christmas until some supernatural visitors came to him on Christmas Eve and taught him to have a new perspective on life, you'd probably say, yes, of course, Ebenezer Scrooge. And that would be a good guess, especially since our theme for the last four Sundays of Advent has been Finding Christ in a Christmas Carol, and it's a great story. I love how we've looked at all the ways the visitation of the various ghostly spirits kind of confronted Scrooge with the pain of his past, with his ignorance about the present, but also the impending consequences of his future. It was great to see how those visitations led to a spiritual transformation in Scrooge, a a joyful repentance that changed his cold-hearted heart and changed him into this buoyant, just jubilant man who literally feels born again. He wakes up on Christmas morning saying, I'm as light as a feather, as happy as an angel, as giddy as a drunken man. I'm quite a baby. I don't know anything. Never mind, I don't care. I'd rather be a baby because it's Christmas Day. A Christmas Carol is a great story. But if that's your guess, you'd be wrong. Because that's not the story I'm thinking about tonight. I'm thinking about the story of Gabriel Grubb. Gabriel Grubb. Have you ever heard of him? Probably not. In the year 1836, seven years before he wrote A Christmas Carol, Dickens published a short story in a larger collection of stories called The Pickwick Papers. The full title was The Story of the Goblins Who Stole a Sexton. Now a sexton is a churchy word for the person who serves as the caretaker and the gravedigger. Gabriel Grubb was the sexton for this little English church in a rural village. And it turns out he was actually the prototype or the literary cousin of Ebenezer Scrooge. Dickens describes Gabriel Grubb as an ill-conditioned, cross-grained, surly fellow, a morose and lonely man who consorted with nobody but himself. He had a deep scowl of malice and ill humor. And so he sounds a lot like Scrooge, doesn't he? One Christmas Eve, Grubb decides to go to the churchyard to begin to dig a grave for an upcoming funeral. As he walks through the streets of London, of of his village, he he watches as people are getting ready for their Christmas parties, parties he would never deem to attend, as if he would ever even get an invitation. When he sees children playing games, Grubb amuses himself with thoughts of the children coming down with all kinds of diseases, like whooping cough and measles and scarlet fever. If his neighbors offered him a a Christmas greeting, Grubb would return, as Dickens describes, a short, sullen grunt. Not humbug, but sort of its pre-verbal precursor. When Gabriel Grubb sees a boy singing Christmas carols in the street, he corners the lad and hits him on the head six or seven times with his lantern. And when he gets to the church graveyard and starts digging the grave, he cheers himself by making poems and songs and singing a coffin at Christmas, a Christmas box, ho, ho, ho. I mean, he's as foul a curmudgeon as you could possibly imagine. Gabriel Grubb actually outscrooges Scrooge. But then Gabriel Grubb receives a surprise visitor, a grinning goblin, who taunts him about his creepy thought life and his equally miserable real life. Soon this goblin is joined by a whole troop of goblins. They capture Grubb and they drag him down into their subterranean lair, this big cavern. Turns out the first uh, goblin is actually the king of goblins. And the king's band of underling goblins proceed to show Gabriel Grubb a series of scenes magically projected on the wall of the cavern. The first scene is of a poor family with many children and their mother and the children rejoicing when the father joins them. But then the scene shifts to a bedroom where, as Dickens writes, the fairest and youngest child lay dying. Dickens writes, even as the sexton looked upon him with an interest he had never known before, the little boy died. Yet the family consoles themselves with the assurance that this little one was now in heaven. And of course, the similarity between that scene and Bob Cratchit's family is striking. Well, after the magic video scenes end, the goblins just beat the tar out of old Gabriel Grubb. Then they show him some more ghostly videos, then they beat him up again. The sequence of viewings and beatings goes on all night long because they're trying to teach him a lesson one way or the other. If he's not a visual learner, he might learn by his bruises. And in the process, he begins to see the contrast between hardworking, poor people who are generally cheerful and happy even in their poverty because they have the strength of family and faith. He sees that contrasted with people like himself, whom Dickens describes as men who snarl at the mirth and cheerfulness of others who were the foulest weeds On the fair surface of the earth. Well, finally, after a long night of visions and beatings, Gabriel Gubb wakes to the light of Christmas morning. He's lying on a gravestone in the churchyard. He wakes up and it says that he's an altered man. He's seen the error of his ways, but in a really weird twist, he doesn't go into town to show people this new man that he's become. He doesn't show them his repentant heart. He's too afraid afraid that no one will believe him, that they'll just laugh at him and at his claim to be a changed man. So he disappears from the village for 10 years. And when he finally returns, he's a ragged, uh, rheumatic old man. And so the happy ending doesn't really happen for Gabriel Grubb. Well, the parallels between this story of the goblins and the Christmas carol, they're so easy to see and hearing the story, it's like, it's like looking at the charcoal sketches of an artist getting ready to paint a masterpiece. Obviously, Dickens did a lot of remixing of some of his own material. Uh, this solitary, nasty man who refuses to celebrate Christmas, but who spurns the greetings of others who do. Christmas Eve, the man receives unexpected supernatural visitors who show him many scenes of life, including the moving scene of a poor, loving family whose youngest child is terribly in. In the end, the man is changed by this experience. So there are obvious parallels between Gabriel Grubb and Ebenezer Scrooge. And of course, there are also many differences, particularly the ending. Where Gabriel Grubb slinks away out of fear that the townspeople will laugh at him, Ebenezer Scrooge boldly resolves to live a changed life. In my message this past Sunday, I mentioned that when the light of Christmas Day dawns on Scrooge, He's just simply overcome with joy. He's laughing uncontrollably. He says, I'm as light as a feather, as happy as an angel, as merry as a schoolboy, as giddy as a drunken man. The weight of his sinful self has fallen off his shoulders, and he's the happiest that he's ever been in his life. That's the Scrooge we, we should remember. When we say the name of Scrooge, we should envision this joyful man whose heart was transformed. The light of salvation entered his dark heart, and brought the dead to life. And so he's a living example of how the love of God can empower people to forgive their past, to live and love and serve others in the present, but also have great hope for the future. Now in my work, I get the joy of seeing that happen in real life. People who are going along their merry way and then all of a sudden something causes them to veer off their predictable path. Usually it's not the visitation of some ghostly spirit. More often it's something just unexpected hits their life. It could be a blessing, a a new job, a new love, a new friend, a new child. That can cause a spiritual awakening in people. Or often the catalyst for this kind of deep spiritual reflection is something unwelcome, a diagnosis of cancer, a marital conflict, or maybe even being laid off. Something big happens that, that all of a sudden forces people to take a serious look at life. And often it feels like the goblins have circled and they're just beating the tar out of them like they did to poor Gabriel Grubb. One problem after another. And that pain can drive people to explore a closer relationship with God almost just for pure survival because they don't know if they're going to have the strength to do it on their own. In my pastoral experience, people are rarely interested in renewal, rarely open to change of heart when everything is just kind of status quo. When everything's running smoothly, people are kind of content to stay on the familiar course. But if that course leads to suffering, then all of a sudden, people get interested in God. Unfortunately, often that kind of pain-driven interest in God, it's very short-lived. As soon as the pain goes away, so does this new spiritual interest. And I've seen the pattern. People become interested in Christ but the interest wanes when the pain goes away. But you can count on the fact that as soon as trouble comes again, they'll be back and they'll, they'll, their interest will peak again until the next crisis stops. So here's the thing. Pain by itself doesn't forge long-lasting change in people. Pain alone doesn't bring people into a new relationship with God. It might be the motivator to get the process started, but pain alone does not produce lasting faith. Well, there's a second thing that can influence people to start a new relationship with God. Scrooge is changed because he sees children in a new light, especially through the suffering of Tiny Tim. After his heart change, you see Scrooge joining with the children in their games, and their laughter. He becomes more childlike himself and cares little that some of the townspeople now look down on him for being so playful and, in their minds, undignified. He's like the happiest grandfather in the world, down on his knees playing with the kids. Children do have a way of thawing icy hearts. I've seen this especially, I think, in men. Men who've maybe been trapped in kind of this inexpressive machismo until they become fathers. Witnessing the miracle of birth, coming out of the delivery room with a child in their arms, all of a sudden... That can develop a tenderness that flows into their hearts and if by magic, but of course it's not magic. It's actually witnessing a divine moment. And so with parenthood then comes this tremendous sense of responsibility, this desire to raise that child in the best way possible. And so you want a place where there's positive peers for the children, the, the best influences, the right morals, good skills to cope with this complicated world. And that's often when people will turn to God and to the church because they know the church can help provide those things for their children. But there's a danger with that too. If parents only pursue faith because of their children, then when the children grow up and leave home, often the parents discover they don't have a solid faith of their own. Their faith has been only experienced through their children. They may have taught Sunday school. They may have served in the youth ministry, but it was only because of of their own kids, not because of a a real personal experience of Christ for themselves. And so when the empty nest hits, so many adults don't know how to relate to Christ or the church. They don't have their own faith. It's been through their children. And so there's no guarantee that children will work to, to develop that positive faith change in people. Usually something more is required. Faith is something that must be personal. It's a personal decision each day to live connected to the God who made us and who made all things. It's personal because it can't be dependent on any other person. It can't be dependent on a child, a spouse, a pastor, a priest, a mother, a girlfriend or boyfriend. No, true faith is intimately personal. And it is you and Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. Might start off with other influences, but there's got to come a time when each one of us solidifies our own faith in Christ through personal surrender. The good news for those of us who are in need of this kind of spiritual transformation, and that means all of us, the good news is that God's Spirit is in the renewal business. According to the Bible, the Holy Spirit gives life, leads us into new life. The Spirit draws us into that initial life with Jesus when we confess Him as Lord and Savior. But then that same Spirit of God empowers us To live life in a whole new way. The Holy Spirit helps us to see the world around us with a fresh perspective. Opening our minds, touching our hearts. And unlike all the ghostly spirits in a Christmas carol, God's Holy Spirit doesn't disappear when Christmas is over. (coughs) Excuse me. God puts His Spirit right into our hearts so that we can have a new source of power to live this new life. To live each day less by our own strength and more and more by the power of God's Spirit. You see, Scrooge had to confront the pain of his past, the the problems of his present, and his fears about the future. But we all face those exact same things. God helps us to heal and forgive the pain of our past. Jesus can give us a new perspective and a new power to live in the present. And as we look to the future, boy, are we going to need the presence of the Spirit in 2020. I mean, 2019... That was quite a year. Natural disasters, economic upheavals, acts of terrorism, racial violence, tragic shootings, and all the political fighting. All this public vitriol and the jockeying for power have just poisoned our political world. There's corruption, there's greed on all sides. And so 2020 is not looking like it's going to start off and be much of a better year. Every one of those problems just makes me want to retreat in fear about the future. But then I remember that on this night so long ago, Mary and Joseph, the wise men, the shepherds, had every reason to fear. King Herod was on the throne, a paranoid dictator who murdered his own sons and his wife because he thought they posed a threat. Roman soldiers roamed the land and brutalized the people. Taxes were through the roof. But Mary and Joseph, the wise men, and the shepherds each received a spiritual visitation about God's promised Messiah. We heard it read earlier in Luke 2.10. Don't be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people, for today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah of the Lord, and this will be a sign to you, you'll find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Their spiritual visitation led them to make room in their hearts for God's Son, because God sent His one and only Son to save us from the sins of the past, empower our present, and defeat the fears of the future. The little baby born, died on a cross, buried, yet rose again to prove to you and me that the tomb is empty and God's promises are true. That's why the angel could say to Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men, and to you and me, do not be afraid. Because of Jesus, it's possible to see a cold, cold heart changed. Rose Kennedy was the famous matriarch of the Kennedy clan and the mother of President John F. Kennedy. Once when she was older in her life, she attended a Bible study led by Dr. Jess Moody. After the class, Mrs. Kennedy came up to Moody and privately shared a story, and he recalls her conversation this way, and I'm going to read it. She said, I was a spoiled young bride of a strong-willed man, a socialite who attended every function possible. We were expecting a child. We're quite elated at the prospect. She was a beautiful child. We're ecstatic but it wasn't long until we realized that there was something terribly wrong with her. We took her to the doctor, confirmed our fears that she had developmental problems and nothing could be done. Anger grew within my heart. How could God do such a thing to this child? How could God do such a thing to me? I turned my back on God. On my husband, my closest friends, I became a recluse. My husband and I seemed to shun the child. And one evening a major event was happening in the city and I wanted to go, but I was so filled with wrath that I thought I might create a scene, and so my husband feared it too. So we decided just to stay home that evening. I was boiling over with resentment. And there was a lovely woman who was one of our maids. She sensed my boiling spirit. She said, please excuse me, Mrs. Kennedy, but I've been watching you the last few weeks. I love you very much, and I hate to see this destroy your life. I say this as gently as I know how. Mrs. Kennedy, you'll never be happy until you make a heart your heart a manger where, Christ, where the Christ child may be born. I fired her on the spot. You have no idea how filled with anger, how isolated, how focused on doubt I became. That night, my mind ruminated relentlessly, keeping me awake until the late hours. I could not forget her lovely face, the sweetness of her countenance, the subsurface joy that seemed to boil up continually in her spirit, and especially those deathless words, Mrs. Kennedy. You'll never be happy until you make your heart a manger where the Christ may be born. I thought I had loved Christ all my life, tried to be a good Catholic girl all my years, but this was one of those joyous moments of real contact with God and His Son. And so I knelt beside my bed and I prayed, Dear God, make my heart a manger where the Christ child may be born. I felt a fresh new divine entry into my life, and there was born in me a passion a love for special children. Oh, and by the way, I rehired the lovely maid. You see, Christ can change the hardest heart, a Gabriel Grubb, an Ebenezer Scrooge, a Rose Kennedy, or me, or you. You can let the pain of the past, the problems of the present, the fears of the future, we can let that crowd Jesus out, or on this night we can let Christ be born in the manger of your heart. Tonight we can receive the greatest gift of all, pardon for the past, peace for the present, and promise for the future. God is still in the business of changing hearts and lives through Jesus Christ. Let that be our prayer this Christmas. Make my heart a manger where the Christ child may be born. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just invite you right now into the dark parts of our life, into those places where we have kept you out. Lord, may we... Make you welcome within our hearts. May we be a manger for you to be born anew this day, this Christmas. Just as Gabriel Grubb and Ebenezer Scrooge saw a new life, Lord, and Rose Kennedy, may we also see that transformation in our hearts. We thank you for the year ahead, Lord, that you walk us, you walk with us into every situation we'll face. And so we can face the future with promise and with hope. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.